Welcome to episode 52 of Occam's Razor, coming to you via Zoom for the first time. Uh, tonight, my guest, John Fraser, who's the author of Poltergeist, A New Investigation into Destructive Hauntings. John has been on the show. Uh, we'll be talk maybe sort of eight or nine months ago when we talked about hauntings in North London, the famous Enfield haunting and that sort of stuff. Tonight we're back talking great British ghosts. And how are you, John? What have you been up to recently? Well, um, uh, I'm, I'm not too bad. Um, we haven't been on any major investigations, obviously, due to that lockdown. Um, but um, uh, uh, during the summer, we uh, I did go to one or two interesting haunted places just to just uh, find out more about them. Um, possibly one of the most interesting was a place called Chanctonbury Rings, which is a mysterious hill in the middle of nowhere. Uh, people have apparently levitated while there, and um, Alistair Crowley was a great, great fan of it. He thought it had hidden powers. Mm-hmm. And um, just after the um, spring lockdown in, in the United Kingdom, I thought I would go there and spend the night there all by myself. Very brave. It is. Yes. Um, uh, and um, uh, apparently Chanctonbury Rings has also has a peculiar legend. If you walk round it backwards seven or eight times, you will summon up the devil who will offer you porridge, <laughs> which for my Scottish ancestry is no bad thing at all. So right. I thought I would... Um, uh, I, th- I thought I would be a little bit more conventional and just try walking around it the right way. Yep. Uh, and strangely, after I'd walked around it once or twice, suddenly a great horned beast did indeed appear. Uh, it was actually a very, very um, breed of cattle with very, very, very long horns. But I kind of thought this is coincidence in the extreme. Looked a bit dangerous, so I took a couple of photographs and um, uh, retreated a little way. But I mean, this little story is just a good way to kind of show the a lot of um, ghosts in the United Kingdom are based on legends. And I mean, the rest of my evening there, nothing happened, but uh, nevertheless, beautiful legends and well worth exploring in their own right, especially if you get lucky enough to get levitated, as one person did about 10 years before I went up there. But um, uh, so we've kind of got two types of cases in the United Kingdom, these wonderful legendary cases, and we've got some very active cases, some of which are also quite famous as well. Okay. What about um, anniversary ghosts and things like that? Um Particularly, probably in the legendary species, is a particularly good anniversary one. Um, although it's very difficult to actually investigate because it's only supposed to happen every fifty years. There's a um, uh, there's a you'd, you'd, you'd have to get your timing st- right, wouldn't you? Yes, and unfortunately, um, uh, um, I didn't quite, and I'll explain why. Um, there's a wonderful place called the Goodwin Sands, which is sand dunes just off the Kent coast near a small town called Deal. And apparently um, in 1748, there was a um, ship called the Lady Loverbond that was transferring a wedding party of guests. Um, You know, they were all having a good time. 
except that the um, uh, the first mate was actually having an affair with the bride oh and um, got, in, got into an argument and um, uh, with the groom, as one would. And during the argument, um, the boat got steered onto the Goodwin Sands with all lives being lost. And apparently every 50 years, this ship appears. Now it was 1748, so um, there were some apparent sightings in the in 1848 and possibly 1908. Uh, sorry, and, and 18 and possibly 1898. And um, uh, come in the late 1990s, myself and one of my colleagues were very keen to go down to deal for February the 13th, Valentine's Day. Just as friends, of course. Uh, of course. To see if there was any truth in this. Um, uh, yes, a, yes, yes, a girl, the girlfriend, the girlfriend at the time possibly didn't. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing on Valentine's Day? Very romantic. <laughs> but, um, mm. yes, but as, as it happened, um, we tried and tried and tried and couldn't get any accommodation at all in deal. And later we found out why there was actually um, there was actually a, a big article about it in the um, in the Guardian newspaper of how ghost hunters from all around the world had booked years in advance for um, for this ghost ship, and in effect you had deal turned into one large ghost convention. I remember remember. Inviting, inv inviting them out in ships towards Good Goodwin Sands to see if they could see anything, which um, uh, unfortunately they didn't. Uh, so, sorry, you were going to ask? Yeah, no, I was just going to say, it's a bit like how um, ghost hunters kind of invade places like Pluckley on, on uh, Halloween and things like that. This was on an entirely different scale, though, because it's really? probably 50 years. <laughs> sure. <laughs> But nothing was seen. But then I did a bit of research into this. Um, first obvious thing is I actually, I actually I actually went to my local lending library and asked for um, uh, asked for Lloyd's Registry of Ghost Vex seventeen hundred to seventeen fifty, which certainly which you can get for you can you can get any book lent. Um, from anywhere in the country for the priceless sum of 60 pence, uh, which kind of made them roll their eyes because there's probably only about five copies in the country. But uh, nevertheless, I um, uh, got a copy down. No record of the Lady Loverbond ever being sunk in 1748. Okay. And then it got even more interesting because you sit down and start to think. For sure. Now, if all hands were lost, who was there to tell the tale? Mm. Um, this is undoubtedly an old smuggler's tale meant to kind of keep people away from the Goodwin Sands, which was a smuggling place at the time, uh, but nevertheless um, is a wonderful, romantic, great British ghost story. Exactly. So um, uh, based on some subterfuge, effectively. Absolutely, yes. And as I, as I say, a lot of them are, but um, quite a few of them aren't. Um, sure. Shall we talk about some of them that possibly aren't? Absolutely. Uh, you lead the way, John. Yes. Yes. Well, one of the... Um, I mean, the UK has got very much into ghost tourism um, in that some haunted places are letting 
letting people in and spend the nights, which to a certain extent is um, slightly undermining the evidence, but nevertheless, quite a lot of those places have evidence there. And now, also, it pays, it, sorry, it pays for the upkeep of the places a lot as well, doesn't it? <laughs> It's yes, it's absolutely um, absolutely essential to do so because um, I mean, as one person I know, we mentioned the we mentioned the cage quite thoroughly last time, but um, uh, the owner of the cage says um, my my house is haunted. Um, I wouldn't let lodgers stay there. That would be like um, uh, you know being nearly cruel to any any tenant. Sure. Um, so what else can I do with it? And, and to be honest, it's a fair point. But one in the UK that has certainly got a lot of publicity recently is an old um, uh, is an old case dating back to the 1960s in a very modest council house um, in East Drive, Pontefract. Okay. Now. For some reason, it's also got associated with being um, named the Black Monk of Pontefract case. And very well known case. Very well known case, probably, probably, probably even in New Zealand as well. Now, there was undoubtedly a haunting and quite a lot of poltergeist activity, uh, or at least reputedly in the 1960s, um, which included lots of object movements and somebody seeing a shadowy figure which was identified as being a black monk. And all things went quiet for uh, a little while until um, somebody actually made a low-budget movie on it and actually bought the house to... um, to have the premiere of the movie in the house as a publicity stunt. And that, for some reason, seemed to trigger everything off again. Okay. A little, bit like, that, a little bit like the Amityville horrors done in, in the US. Um, does the, um, I thought the Amityville actually stayed pretty pretty private these days. I didn't think they let people in. I don't um, think they let people in, but I think there's uh, they get armies of people sort of on the weekend um, taking pictures of the exterior, you know, with the big creepy eyes, cre- creepy eye windows. Well, they did, but I'll tell you something interesting. They actually, I believe, have actually changed windows. Yes, quite recently, for, probably for that very reason. Mm. Uh, but point of fact, I'm dead... Dead ordinary looking council house. Uh, nevertheless, um, uh, there has been quite a lot of things um, seen and heard there when people do go and investigate it. Nearly feels like the expectation triggers things off. Um, for example, I was invited up by a very skeptical paranormal group um, about the year before last. And in the night I was there, absolutely nothing happened. But they stayed there for two nights. And the second night, there was very loud bangs, inexplicable bangs coming from one of the bedrooms, which absolutely them out, being, bearing in mind that they are fairly sceptical. Uh, so you've got an active haunting there. You've got one which, if you book far enough in advance, you can actually spend the night in, uh, which is very interesting. But the other very interesting thing about the Black Monk of, Paltica, of Pontefract case is other than somebody seeing a shadowy figure in a long gown, there's absolutely no evidence for it being haunted by a black monk. It's just kind of got a persona. People like to give ghosts personas. Um, and Pontefract has had two monasteries 
and one hermitage, which is basically underground cells for, for monks, you know, your sort of hardcore monks that wanted to go one further than just spending a bit of soft time in the monastery. <laughs> uh, and is very, very famous as an ecclesiastical centre. Yeah. It seems that somebody sees something in a long verb and immediately goes for a monk. Then they added something about... It was a hanged monk because because um, it was accused of um, killing a child, and um, it was hanged in the nearby spot. Now, I did a bit of research. East Drive until about 1940s, 1950s was basically licorice fields in which um, uh, they made famous Pontifact cakes out of licorice. Of course. And... The hanging site in Pontifact is in the town square. I mean, this wasn't even Pontifact in in the olden days. And the chances of a black monk being hung there uh, is absolutely zero. So you've got an entire non-existent story, but you've got a real ghost. Absolutely. Uh, Who the ghost is or why the ghost is there or whether it's just... um, uh, our own powers kind of summoning it up, who can tell? Makes it so fascinating. You get little bits of truth, little bits of legend all rolled into one and a good bit of paranormal activity chucked in for um, uh, for good style. Always makes the best story, doesn't it? Um, I think of an example of that. When I used to live in Maidstone down in Kent, um, there's a place called Bluebell Hill, which um, many reports of phantom hitchhikers and a and a young girl who sort of throws herself in front of the car. Do you know much about Bluebell Hill? Oh, yes. It's probably the next place I'm actually going to go to once oh, I, am, okay. uh, I, get, I get unlocked. But I've been doing a bit of research on it recently, funnily enough. Um, now, the interesting thing about phantom hitchhikers is you get them all over the world next to a graveyard. As the basic, I mean, it's nearly like an urban legend, um, which would probably go as follows. Um, male driver, it's normally a male driver. That might be because it's late at night and there's not too many female drivers late at night. No. Um, picks up a um, uh, pretty young woman, um, asks to be dropped off somewhere, um, sometimes outside the cemetery, which is strange, and then suddenly disappears. And um, uh, later on, a gravestone is found in the cemetery. That's the arch, uh, which is that of the name given, or maybe she gives an address and um, when and leaves her coat in the car, which turns out to be the coat of a dead girl and the parents white-faced. That's the archetypical urban legend. Nobody can ever quite pin that version of it down. But the interesting thing about Bluebell Hill is it has been witnessed and actually a car crash, a quite serious car crash in 1965, in which a lady and one or two of her friends were killed one day before her wedding. In fact, they had to tell the wedding guests on arrival that the bride wasn't going to turn up because, you know, it was so close and they didn't get get a chance to give them advance notice. Now, whether or not it's that lady that haunts Bluebell Hill, it's tricky to tell. There may have been some sightings previously, but there have definitely been sightings of a female apparition, which people have run down and contacted the police. Now, that's been a young lady at times and also at times a young child. 
um, and the police were notified and went out and searched and could find nothing. So you've actually got an urban legend that seems to actually be active, which is quite fascinating. It's also obviously free to go to. It's a beauty spot with just a stretch of road. So if you're ever touring the UK, go to Kent at twilight, drive slowly up Bluebell Hill and see what you can see. And um, from memory, John, it's more than, well, the, the sightings are more than anecdotal because, uh, as you said, the emergency services and police and stuff have been um, been involved, you know, because people have um, reported hitting someone with their car and that sort of thing. So there is a tangible element to that. No, absolutely. Um, um, somebody did a big research project on it. And throughout the years, also before 1965, just to make it even more mysterious and not able to pin down what the ghost is but he he actually managed to find 40 well recorded witness sightings of um something being seen in the, that road normally a female figure so quite why it happens who can tell but it does seem to happen and with some frequency yes exactly yeah. i mean it's it's and also not everybody will go to the press or the police um, when they see things like this. So it could quite be, they'll probably just think, well. Um, well it's up of the iceberg. Yeah, people are, yeah, yeah, people are just think, think, think I'm talking nonsense. So it, it is, well it be, is it's, mm. it's a quite a frequent event. It is quite a well-known local legend, though. I remember talking with some of the staff at the at the, my workplace at the time. This is sort of dating back 10 or 12 years. Um, and they'd actually all heard about it. Um, so it was, you know, it's a pretty common occurrence to see this apparition, which is interesting. Just as an aside, just down the road from there actually is Leeds Castle. Uh, it's a bit of a misnomer because it's called Leeds Castle, but it's in Maidstone in Kent. Um I went there a few times actually. Just it's a it's a storybook um, fairy tale looking sort of a place. Um, and I went there actually for a jousting tournament. Would you believe, uh, which was a lot of fun. But they have a, a ghost there of a black dog reportedly. No um, no human apparitions. Just one of a uh, of a black dog. You had any experience with um, animal apparitions? Um, I certainly haven't seen any animal apparitions. Uh, most animal Ghosts are harvingers of doom. I mean, most black dogs actually are supposed to appear before some something particularly bad, a death in the family, and so on, are supposed to happen. Uh, as to whether that's the case or not, that probably is ancient urban legend. But um, nevertheless, it's probably best if you don't go looking for them just in case. Just in case. Just in case. That's right. Um, yeah, I mean, that would give you a bit of a fright, wouldn't it? Especially if it was a guard dog or something like that, you know. I've just seen a ghost guard dog yeah. that send you over the edge. But, um, uh, but pro- probably the um, – I mean – I'm not particularly psychic, um, but probably the best and most interesting experience I had with regards to actually seeing paranormal or at least experiencing paranormal phenomena was at a place uh, called RAF Cosworth with the late um, um, 
with the late, quite famous ghost hunter, Peter Underwood, who wrote more than 40 books, puts my two books to shame. Um, now, there's a there's a RAF Lancaster uh, situated there that's supposed to be haunted by an airman, um, which is quite funny because it's never seen any active service. Okay. But nevertheless, we got permission to spend the night there and spent the night there. And um, Peter didn't did think he saw... Uh, the shadowy figure of an airman. But what was most interesting to me is at that point when we curtailed it and um, were taking notes, all the fire exits had mysteriously swung open um, in the aircraft hangar when um, we were like 99% sure they had been closed before. So it seems that sort of apparition ghosts and possibly more like poltergeist incidents seem to go together and that connection did send shivers down my spine absolutely um and what about a bit closer to home um you're from scotland originally i remember uh going to edinburgh edinburgh uh to watch a rugby game actually the all blacks versus scotland maybe about 10 12 years ago um me and a couple of mates took a stroll inadvertently actually i didn't even know this place existed through greyfriars kirkyard um which was uh, romanticized by disney with the uh, greyfriars bobby uh story that that is attached to it uh, the actual kirkyard or, or graveyard is a um well, it's full of uh, plague victims, so it's you know it's a spooky place. It's got all the stereotypical stuff with the raven and the uh, and the um, skull and bone crosses. Um, sorry, skull and bones uh, attached to graves and things like that. You know, it sets the scene. And and I know they ran actively run ghost tours out of there. And there's a story about a, a chief justice or a, a judge or something for a few hundred years ago, and he um, apparently scratches people with the holy trinity and uh, the cloven hoof devil sort of scratch um have you ever been to Greyfriars? first off i haven't but it's in i know you mentioned scratchings it would be interesting to actually find out whether there's any recorded cases because um uh, as I as i say say in my book poltergeist a new investigation in destructive hauntings um Scratchings are actually um, uh, things that happen quite commonly in um, hauntings and poltergeist cases. Um, somebody can go onto a place and come out with their arm scratched or their back scratched and so on. Uh, so if this is actually happening in Grey Fires as opposed to it being an urban legend, it would actually be very nice evidence indeed. Um, sometimes I think the expectation of a place being haunted actually seems to trigger trigger off real, real apparent paranormal experiences such as that. It could even be a minor form of stigmata. You're expecting to something to happen um, if you're really religious, and then you get um, little little cuts in your hand where the nails might have went in. Likewise, if you're expecting a haunting or a ghost, maybe you suddenly get scratches mysteriously appearing on your skin. Mm. Um, but nevertheless, it's not one I've particularly researched, but now that you mention it, there might be one or two interesting angles. 
I theorized a few episodes ago, I think, I think I was talking to Sam Collier, who comes on the show. He's uh, from hauntedauckland.com. Um, and we were talking about the scratches, you know, that appearing in the Holy Trinity and stuff like that. Um, I suffer from allergies uh, quite a bit. And I've noticed on occasions when my stress levels are high, I tend to get strange scratches, uh, particularly around my shoulders and chest. I'm wondering if there's, um, you know, putting a clinical hat on here, I'm wondering if there's any correlation between the stress um, of expectation of seeing, you know, a ghost or whatever, um, you know, and somehow sitting off a, um, you know, allergic reaction in a person who's susceptible to that and, you know, that manifesting as, as sort of these scratches. What do you think of that? I'm thinking now you've told me that um, uh, I, I think a stress factor and in is very big in creating paranormal events. Um possibly real paranormal events, possibly deep psychological ones like that. And I'm thinking now you've told me that um, uh, that you're, you get scratch marks when you're stressed, obviously not because of the paranormal in any way, probably at least, you never know. Mm. Um, I'm actually or fascinated um, uh, because I've never actually... <laughs> I've, mm. I've never actually spoken to somebody with an allergy that has that effect to be honest i've never set out to do so and um uh, and um uh, i nearly want a i nearly want a written statement on that because that <laughs> would actually be in some ways a link between the normal mm. and explaining at least one small aspect of a paranormal except the problem is along with the scratches um uh, suddenly um something flies across the room and that can't be explained in terms of an allergic reaction no you're right um you know, I think it's probably an unconscious thing. Perhaps I'm just scratching an area that has become sort of agitated as a result of the stress levels, you know, cortisol, um, you know, being elevated or something like that. But as you say, with poltergeists, um, you know, they're noisy ghosts. That's what it means, isn't it? And, and um, you know, a, a glass being chucked across the room or, or similar, you know, it's not something you can explain away medically, is it? <laughs> No, that's what makes them. Um, that's what makes them so good because all these, all these, all these wonderful apparitions um, probably can be explained away psychologically, at least to some extent. Um, so, so once you get um, more active types of phenomena, you know, um, aud audios, aud audible sounds, wailings, and so on that you can record are. Or footsteps, so long as they're not just creaking floorboards, or indeed object movements, then you then the skeptics start to struggle a little bit. And even though I'm fairly skeptical myself, um, I don't believe in disbelieving skeptics. And when disbelieving skeptics start to struggle, I get happy. <laughs> Yeah, we, um, we actually had a guy who's uh, from the Skeptic Society here in New Zealand. And he was actually, I was amazed by his, um, well, level-headedness is probably the best uh, way to look at it. He, he approached things, obviously, relatively scientifically, uh, but he was open to hearing everyone else's ideas. He just didn't necessarily agree with them. Um, but I think it's just when you get the, fri the fringe people from both groups going head-to-head, -head, you know, fireworks are going to happen. And I'm sure you've had um, debates with uh, skeptics or people people skeptical about the work you do? Uh, not many, to be honest, because uh, because uh, they seem to um, operate in in 
in different groups and never never the two shall mix um i'd i'd love sure. to i'd love to but um i can remember once going along to a skeptical meeting and asking a ask, asking a question and um uh, everybody turned around looking really shocked that i might even broach such, i can't even remember what the question was on but i, I might even broach such a such a thing because it it's all plainly not true and uh, that was probably more hardline skeptics but no i'd love to um i'd love to get into a debate because i'd probably agree with most of what they are saying about certainly apparitional ghosts there's um there's confirmation bias and all kinds of psychological theories, most of which are quite sound. But until they get a a good explanation for um, for ghosts that do things, that make noises or throw things and so on, uh, you can't just say, oh, they're all making it up because it's it's too worldwide. Um, we're going to go through a few cases in the UK. There's hundreds in the UK. There's probably lots in New Zealand, America, and all around the world, possibly expressed as different things. Uh, but there is something weird happening, whether we can explain it by science or whether we need a new science to explain it. Uh, who can tell? But there is something out there. Good way to look at it. Moving to the Principality of Wales. Um, I once went to North Wales when I was a younger fellow, maybe 20 years back or so. Um, and the only time I've ever felt um, in the presence of something um, potentially malevolent or, or paranormal um, was when I visited Conway Castle. And Conway's a small fishing village in the in the north of England, home to the world's smallest house. Um, anyway, as you do, I went and checked out the local castle and walked along the walls and stuff. And I made my way up a turret um, just to get a bit of view from the top effectively got about halfway up the stairs and I felt a basically like you know someone was telling me not to come any further effectively um, you know there was nothing there but it, it, it freaked me out enough that I actually you know sprung around and ran back down the stairs um, and and didn't bother go up going up into that part of the castle for the rest of the trip um, Wales is, is well known um, particularly up north there's a lot of towns like Clondino and I think that's how you pronounce it Clondino someone will uh, write in and, and, and correct me on that um, and Anglesey and these sort of places quite mysterious sort of places um, what's your favourite Welsh ghost story? Ooh, uh, <laughs> Am I throwing you I a really spanner? I really haven't explored Wales to the extent I yeah. probably should have. It's probably more Scotland and England. Yeah. Um, uh, we should have probably did this as Scottish and English ghosts, which would have been a bit unfair in Wales because it is filled with legends. Sure. But, uh, there's a question I'd, I'd like to ask you, actually. Yep. How are you with heights? Are you good with heights? Um, you know, I, I don't love them. But at the same time, uh, I was young and full of bravado, so I, you know, it was it wouldn't, wouldn't have been an issue. Um, I see where you're going with that, but it was obviously that wouldn't the, have been a conscious issue, at least. I don't think so. No, no. Yeah, no, no, maybe not. No, because um, uh, because there's all kinds of subconscious triggers, yeah. and uh, I was just I was just curious, but it's obviously obviously we'll never know because um, probably. Well, mm. Well, part of it is Probably. it didn't actually reach the top. 
Um, so this was in the stairwell heading up. It was only about halfway up or so. So there was, you know, I was enclosed, so there was no window or anything. Or, you know, I wasn't hanging off the edge or anything like that. That would anything that would raise anxiety levels. They it was just a throwaway possibility. I mean, the one time I've ever got a bit freaked out visiting a haunted place was for totally natural reasons. Um, when in my younger days as well, when I was full of vado, so I thought I actually thought I would spend the night in an arch typical haunted house. Now, there's not many of them around because as far as I was concerned at the time, an arch-typical haunted house had to be one that you couldn't leave until daylight. You know, otherwise it's not. There's no fun in it. Absolutely. Um, and there's not there's not many available, obviously. Um, but there is a ruined cottage right at the very, very tip of the north of Scotland um, called Sandwood Cottage, which is right just off a mysterious bay called Sandwood Bay and both the cottage and the bay are supposed to be haunted by an old sailor possibly of Polish descent who um, uh, who walks along the bay and is sometimes seen in the cottage now the twist on this place is it's a ruined cottage it, it did have a roof when I visited uh, unfortunately doesn't now but it's four miles from the nearest nearest navigable road and um, uh, down a down a dirt track surrounded by peat bogs so once you're there there's probably little chance that you would want to venture back until daylight now what made it even worse is I left my torch on recharge in the local restaurant and I arrived there just about twilight to find out I didn't have a torch. So I definitely wasn't going anywhere before daylight. And I must admit, with for all my bravado, I started to get a little bit panicky. And um, I started looking around, you know, sensing things for a little while. And... Um, even thought I saw white floating phantoms on the nearby hill. Then when eventually my eyes acclimatized to the glowing, glowing dark, I realized they were sheep. So it shows that when you have an expectation, you do things. I then saw a, what I thought was a ghostly light on the back of the cottage wall. And then I rationalized that we were seven miles from a very major lighthouse and it was flickering every one or two minutes. It was undoubtedly, even though I couldn't see the light from the lighthouse, it was undoubtedly flickering over the horizon and and um, rebounding off the back of the... I got used to it. I actually had an amazing night in the wilderness. Uh, but that this show how expectations and even being in a slight amount of danger and that it was in one of the most remote places in the whole of the United Kingdom and had anything went wrong, if they didn't have mobile phones in those days, I would have been stuck there. Uh, it does show that if you have a sense of foreboding, there is every chance you're likely to pick things up. And a little, a little twist in the end of this is, I kind of call myself a paranormal researcher these days more than just an investigator. And uh, I did do a bit of research. And 
in in a cottage that's not so ruined about a kilometre away, there is there used to actually be staying in a permanent basis a mysterious Glaswegian gentleman called James McVervy Smith. And he used to take walks to the village and sometimes a pub and wander back and possibly if he'd had a couple um pop in for a rest in <laughs> the ruined cottage on the way back. Sure. Now I would ask you I would ask your listeners to Google James McRory Smith. He was quite a character and you will get pictures of him. And he looks exactly like an arch typical bearded old wizened sailor. So I'm wondering if that might account for some of the sightings. Mm. It's, it certainly sounds like the most likely suspect. If I was to apply the Occam's razor to it, um, I think there's probably a bit of a bit of a mix mix up of stories between a few people. Probably after a few drinks at the local. No, absolutely. I mean, you do need to go for the um, uh, as William of Ockham said. If there's a simple explanation, go for it. He wrote it in Latin, mm-hmm. um, so that's not quite the way it came out. But that's basically Ockham's razor. Uh, you know, if um, uh, it's uh, it's it's a principle that people should always investigate on. Uh, but there are thankfully enough cases where the simplest explanation doesn't necessarily stand up and then we're into the real mysterious. Absolutely. Um, just looking or staying in from my uh, side of things in the north of England, I once went to... Uh, was it Shingle Hall you went to? It was, it was, it was. I'm psychic. <laughs> yeah, we go. We're following a similar pattern. That's right. I once went to uh, Chingle Hall um, in Preston when, in Lancashire. I actually was in Preston because my grandfather was from there um, and I was up there sort of just in, in having a look around effectively. Um, I understand you've been there as well. Yes, I went there um, with an um, uh, organised investigation with a organisation called the Association for the Scientific Study of Anomalous Phenomena, uh, thankfully better known as ASAP because it's a bit of a mouthful. Sure. Um, uh, it fascinating place. It's, it was um, uh, claiming to be uh, England's most haunted house in the 80s and the 90s. And by itself, to be England's most haunted house, you have to be willing to publicise your ghosts. So if you go back to Burley Rectory, um, that may well have been very haunted, but was also very well publicised. Mm-hmm. Now, these were probably the first house in the country that basically organised mass ghost tours. So they may have had a... Um, they may, they may have, they may have had a reason for putting icing on the cake, but nevertheless, there was quite a lot of good, good, good ghost and poltergeist activities happening there. Um, wonderful old mooted manor house, quite small actually, but um, uh, dating back, I think, to the 13th century. Um, I believe maybe rumoured to have a monastery on on the grounds. Certainly, um, uh, was a Catholic hideaway during the religious persecutions and um, a lot of atmosphere there. Unfortunately, we didn't see anything. Um, uh, there um, uh, There were some noises from a shed which people guaranteed 
no animals were kept in, but luckily we never take people's words for it. We went and investigated the shed and found there were animals in it indeed. <laughs> uh, so you must always check what people say. You must. Uh, but, but that's not to say the place wasn't haunted because ghost hunting is very much like fishing. Um, just because you don't catch one, it doesn't mean there aren't fish in the river. Absolutely. Staying in Lancashire, actually, um, have you ever been to Pendle Hill, where associated with witch, witchcraft and so forth? No, I haven't actually, but it, it is a, does sound like a fascinating place. Mm. Okay. But, um, uh, it, it's, um, I'll never claim to have done a full investigation or anything like that there. I've kind of just wandered around taking a few pictures from a distance. I didn't actually even scale the hill. It was, it was a little bit too hard to get up to. So I thought I'd flag that for another day. Yeah, no, it's, um, uh, it's a fascinating place. I mean, uh, most, most, most sites of um, mass execution and so on do seem to do seem to have ghosts. Uh, I haven't actually done much research into Salem, but I I hear that's particularly haunted as well. Um, you know, Salem in in America, where sure. they had similar witch trials, um, somewhat somewhat um, uh, about a century later, uh, and it is particularly haunted now. I suppose again, you have to ask yourself: Is this the poor souls coming back to tell people about how much they suffered, or is it the fact that people go with an expectation, um, and in the same way, possibly stress can set off a rash? Maybe it can set off some more, some far more powerful things. Uh, maybe it can actually create apparitions or create object movements or create all kinds of phenomena, whether it's whether it's um, because death is one of the most stressful events. Um, it's impossible to say whether ghosts are indeed dead people or the fact that you're in a place of death um, uh, makes sets off some strange powers within you. It's mm. probably very difficult to tell between the two. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, is any self-respecting uh, Kiwi who goes over to London, you spend quite some time in public houses. Now, um, London is full of pubs, uh, obviously. I used to work in a pub when I was about 21, uh, just parked between, on Euston Road there, parked between Euston and King's Cross Station. At the time, it was called the Friar and Firkin. I think it's called the Rocket today. Um, originally called the Sun, um, we had a resident spirit that used to freak out the landlord there, and she used to walk up the stairs, uh, and you'd hear the sound of a cup of tea rattling. Um, personally, I never experienced anything there. I was usually, you know, um, had finished my shift and kind of crashed out. Um, I was in a room with three other guys, so there wasn't a lot of um, uh, <laughs> a lot of space, if so to speak. Um, London, as I said, full of pub ghosts. Uh, the Grenadier Pub is one that's is notorious. You know, it, it um, gets featured a lot on ghost hunting shows and things like that. Um, you ever spent any time there? If um. Uh they don't encourage overnight investigations, unfortunately. But I've been okay. there and interviewed the 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 bar lady. It's um, uh, it's a place to go. Um, certainly, if you're going in a pub call, it's got to be the first pub to go to because it's down an amazing small alley, and you'd probably never find it otherwise. Um, it's an amazing looking place. Um, it's supposed to be haunted by the um. Uh, 
just the grenadier funnily enough who was found cheating at cards and um, was beaten by his mates so badly he died in the pub cellars now sounds like a romantic ghost tale but um uh, the the pub staff have actually confirmed they do get a sense of foreboding in the pub cellars and have sort of heard strange noises down there. So it would be one that would be fascinating to investigate and um, and certainly a place that's fascinating to have a have a pint. Or oh, they do specialise in Bloody Marys there. <laughs> uh, so if you want your drinks with a bloody twist, um, uh, go to the Grenadier. Um, for- Funnily enough, in London, um, probably the best, at one time, the most active um, pub ghost was actually very nearly my local. I live in Thornton East Croydon, and Croydon became very famous in the 1970s for a um, ghost poltergeist at the King's Head pub. Um which was quite a modern building, although it was made to look old-fashioned inside. And there may or may not have been a suicide um, uh, throwing themselves off from the um, uh, the high-rise building opposite and possibly landing on the roof of the pub. That is still needs to, needs to have a little bit of research, but that's a story behind it. But um, uh, now this ghost uh, rearranged the glasses. Um, uh, you'd leave the ashtrays out and they, they'd be all laid out on the floor the next day, um, made the normal normal ghostly noises, ghostly presences, also interfered to the electrics to a point where every time you tried, they tried to um, uh, clock up a beer sale, it came to £999, which in the 1970s would have been overcharging to the extreme. But steep, um, yeah. bit steep. It's also, um, uh, strangely enough, um, 666 upside down, but that's just me speculating. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was, a, there, was, there was a lot of... Um, they had a lot of famous ghost hunters investigating that place. It then became Goody's Wine Bar and then became a place called Bar Latino. When I last contacted them, they said they'd had some strange events, including being locked inside the pub. Um, the pub manager being locked inside the pub for no apparent reason and also seeing one or two things. Sadly, Last year it got demolished, so we can no longer see if there was anything there or not. But nevertheless, that was one of the most active pub cases in London. Have you um, ever been to the George Inn, the old gallery Inn, um, just on London Bridge there, where, close to where the uh, Belfast is, is moored up? Um, I think Charles, it appears in one of Charles Dickens's books or something like that, and it's an old-fashioned, what they call a gallery Inn. <laughs> Uh, yes, I have. Not only that, um, uh, I'm a member of the, um, uh, the Ghost Club, an old society that was set up in 1864 and may have had Charles Dickens as a member, funnily enough. Was there right? And we, yeah, we used to meet there and have our Christmas parties there for a number of years. Um, it's a wonderful place. Um I think, to be honest, um, I don't think there's been any recent events there. It's probably more legendary ghosts and 
slate uh, and it's the sort of building that would seem to be haunted. But why did you have any strange experiences there? Oh, aside from some dodgy fish and chips, nothing really. But um, yeah, yeah. The, um, uh, <laughs> the, one, good... the, the the one hint for um, the one hint for any. Anyone visiting London is, um, however nice and historic the pub, if it's on a main street, do not get fish and chips no. because it's a tourist style, um, and it's um, uh, it is what it is. Uh, if you want to go a little bit out of town, go to a little side street restaurant, and you'll get real fish and chips. Absolutely, going to your haunted pub. Absolutely. Um, now I can't. Uh, I can't let you go without you giving me your favourite haunt of all time. One that you've investigated of all time, and it doesn't have to be somewhere in Britain that necessarily you've had the most activity. Um, somewhere that's just resonated you with uh, with you the most. You know, you, you've enjoyed the investigation. The place is significantly creepy that you'd you'd love to go back a hundred times. What's it for you? What's number one? Well, the easy, the number number one we've discussed. Some would be every about four or five times, um, but um, uh, let's if we go off script just a little bit. Um, uh, probably the most amazing experience I've had is probably not quite a haunting, but it's when I was travelling by myself and not, not ghost hunting in any way, shape, or form. Um, in Prague, just after the um, just after the Iron Curtain fell in the late 1980s, um, and I was reading a book by a quite well-known author, Czech author called Milan Kundra, um, who was persecuted under communism. And Milan Kundra often writes at a tangent. Um, and um, I kind of read a few pages, you know, every day, just to kind of feel at home in Prague. And I found a, I eventually found a cheap budget hotel in Prague, which was difficult just after the Iron Curtain fell. Um, and it was obviously a new hotel being converted from something else in a very small street. And I was reading Milan Kundra and um, he was talking about how you used to live in a small street called Baratolska um, on the fourth floor. I think the relevance was because it was just opposite the secret police station, which was kind of ironic because he, the secret police were keeping an eye on him and it kind of made it very easy for them to do so. The Stasi kind of, or similar, was it? Yes, they, I think they were called some. Stasi was East Germany. But no, yeah, it was East they, Germany. Okay. The Czech Stasi, or whatever ever we want, whatever we want to call them. Every communist country had one. Sure. Then I suddenly um uh, thought this is strange because I looked out of my um uh, bedroom window and um, right across the road was an absolutely huge police station, and then I looked at the road sign. And reminded myself it was Baratolska Street. And then I counted the floors downwards to where I was, you know, the room I was staying, and I was actually on the fourth floor. Now, I don't know what that means. I mean, I mean, I think Cal Jung, the um, young, the um, uh, the psychologist, uh, 
the psychologist had this word called synchronicity, meaningful coincidences. Uh, but that just kind of blew my brains away. It was as if I was meant to be there for some reason. Um, and um, possibly staying in the um, uh, same room that Milan Kundra had written the book that I was actually reading about at that time. Um, I, I even... I even when I was writing Poltergeist, some um, uh, I actually um, I actually emailed Milan Kundra's uh, agent and actually asked him to ask if there was any particular reason and he, he'd included the detail and if he had any photographs of the actual flat he was staying in and they got back to me but unfortunately he didn't uh, so I couldn't ascertain whether it was the exact room but it was one heck of a coincidence and that's the sort of thing that makes you mm. think there might be something special out there and certainly as far as Great Britain goes it has more than its fair share of special stories um, and I, I also think if there is something special out there it's probably paranormal we get all this sort of witchcraft magic you know synchronicity ghosts poltergeists I think there's probably one power that sets off the whole lot which is probably why um uh, I can be a ghost hunter and talk about ghosts and write a book about poltergeists um, because, uh, to be honest, the book I've just written does spend a lot of time talking about ghosts and their interrelationship with poltergeists and brings up some of the cases we have also talked about today. Um, uh, it's... Um, uh, I do believe it's also available uh, on the Mighty Ape website in New Zealand. So in case anyone was possibly interested. We get um, our audience, shout out to the people of the United States, 55% of them um, appear to be listening from over there. Um, you've, we can put up a link to uh, Amazon for your book as well. Oh yeah, it's on it's in it's on Amazon USA for sure. Okay. Um, it's just, I don't think you've got Amazon in New Zealand yet. No, uh, we, do they don't take uh, it down here. No, no, no it's um, uh, it's um, uh, double-edged sword. I think convenient, but it does make you very lazy, and it does stop <laughs> small bookshops from uh, from existing. And I love small bookshops, especially small haunted bookshops. Absolutely, there's not enough of those anymore, is there? No, absolutely. <laughs> we could go on for hours, John, but unfortunately we don't have it, so we're going to have to catch you on the next uh, next one. So thanks for coming on. Um, it's a pleasure. And what have you got lined up in terms of investigation? Obviously you're a bit hamstrung by lockdown uh, provisions in the UK. Um, are you going to imagine, manage to get out? You, you mentioned you might go down to Kent at some, or go up to Kent at some point. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I might do a recce of Bluebell Hill because it fascinates me. That would be what I call a light touch investigation. You know, um, yeah. I mean, but uh, investigation wise, I'm the Council of Society of Psychical Research, and to a certain extent, it really depends who contacts us post lockdown. We're getting a lot of um, anecdotal sightings coming through. Uh, obviously, we can't follow up on any of them at the moment. Um, a lot of historic sightings, which are good for records, but um, but but with regards to investigations, to a certain extent, it's very much where the leads take us, and um, uh, who knows where that will be. 
Well, there's plenty of great spots down in Kent. You know, you got your Dover Castle, um, which is twin. The um, you know the ghost stories from that castle have been going on for centuries. I think there's a headless horseman and uh, and really interesting place to actually um, investigate. Not just from the spiritual side of it, but also the fact that it was used um, in the Second World War. There's a um, a number of tunnels that are actually cut into the to the chalk, as it were, um, right on the you know, White Cliffs of Dover, and they use it for secret wartime tunnels and things like that. Um, I enjoyed having a look down there. Is that something you've been to before? I haven't been to it, but I've seen a video of a very, very large door rattling off its hinges for no apparent reason. Oh, really? So um, uh, it is um, – that was a another ASAP investigation. Um, um, I'm also a member of ASAP uh, – but um, I wasn't part of that investigation, but um, uh, I will trust them when they say there was nobody on the other side of that door. So that's uh, not just a good old romantic case. It does appear to be very active. So if you do go there, keep an eye on the doors. Hmm. Good hunting. Thanks for coming on, John. We'll catch you in the next one. It's a pleasure.